When was the last time that you stopped to ponder the concept of eternity? Like really stop to think about it for yourself. Like when does eternity begin and does it ever end? And is it even real to begin with? It's been said that time is the length of life and eternity is the fullness of life. And we can understand time, right? We measure it on our wrists and on our devices. We have apps, we have life hacks. We measure it in minutes, seconds, hours, days, months, and years. And we talk about it as if it's a commodity, right? Something we want to buy more of or something we want to invest in someone or something. For instance, it feels like another lifetime ago that we gathered without six feet between us and face masks dividing us, right? So fill in the blank for me right here. Remember before COVID-19 when we used to fill in the blank? What is it? Go ahead and say a couple things. Did somebody say have fun? (laughs) We used to hug. Remember when? I mean, it seems like forever ago, but it was only eight months, right? And speaking of time, in the book of Revelation, there are accounts of what eternity will be like and what the end of days, the last days will look like. And verse one of chapter one says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly come to pass. Now, if that was over 2,000 years ago, where are we now in the scope of time and eternity? Are we in the 11th hour? Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that of all gifts we've been given, time is the most precious because it's the most irrevocable. We can't get it back. And we can understand time, right? But eternity, who can fathom? And it takes a lot of courage to ask this question because regardless of what you believe in this moment about eternity, honest inquiry always causes us to challenge our beliefs and our behaviors and how they go together. Because for many of us, if we're honest, the question of eternity really comes up when we lose somebody that we love. And I've been to funerals of friends and family members over the years, but for me, this concept really hit home when my father passed away unexpectedly at the young age of 55 just a few years ago. And among other things, it it obviously rocks your world, right, when you lose someone that you love. But I began to question this concept of eternity because he loved Jesus and trusted Jesus as his, as his savior. But if we're eternal souls, where is he? And will he know me after death or will we see each other again? I mean, after death, is it annihilation? Do we cease to exist or is it just separation? We'll talk in the coming weeks about eternal destinations But for now, the question this morning remains, is eternity, eternal life, real? And the writer of Ecclesiastes, a book in the Old Testament, deals with this. What are two things in life that are certain? What my mama always said, right? There's two things that are certain. What are they? Death and taxes, right? And Ecclesiastes, they talk about one of those things a lot. You're like, please don't let it be taxes. (laughs) He says, The writer says, all come from dust, and to dust all return. And let us not miss the gravity of this moment, right? This touches every single one of us at some point. And I think stopping to ponder that is so important, but also so weighty, isn't it? So last week when John talked about being stunned at the eye doctor, like not knowing you couldn't see, 
um, or like getting your eyes checked. How many of you have done that before? Where you're like, I can see. Yeah, some, some of you are like, yes, that's me. That was totally me. Two years ago, Johnny and I, my husband and I, we found our family in the ER because he had had a major bike accident, a BMX accident. He had had a concussion. He had broken his, some you know, bones in his wrist and his shoulder. And um, who did I call first? Kyle Volkmer. Because he was supposed to officiate a wedding that day right before the accident. And so I'm like, what am I going to do? So I call Kyle and I don't even get the words. I'm like, Kyle, Johnny's been in a bike accident. And as I'm saying accident, I hear him yell up the stairs, babe, get my suit. And I wish he would have said like super suit or something because he's such a superhero to all of us, right? But he literally pinched it for Johnny that day. He came in and did the wedding for him. Thank you, Jesus and Kyle a good friend, but we found ourselves in the ER and, you know, there's not much going on. It's later at night. My kids are blowing up gloves and pretending to be chickens. Has anyone done that before? You know, it's just like, and they're having a great time and the nurses are buying time. They're like, let's check your temperature. Let's check your, and they're like, how about we check your eyes? And my kids say, let's check mommy's eyes. And I'm like, let's check mommy's eyes because I'm like, I've had 20-20 vision all my life. I'm fine. I'm ready to ace this test. Right? So I step up to the plate and my right eye is first and I'm, I kind of can see things, but I keep thinking something's in my eye. I can't, like, I got to get it free, right? So I can read them basically. But then I switch to my left eye and after the giant E at the top, I can read nothing. And I keep thinking, man, something's really in this eye. <laughs> so I keep on kind of going like this and inadvertently I'm peeking through my right hand uh, and I don't even realize I'm doing it. My kids are like, mom, you're cheating. And the nurses are like, we recommend mommy gets her eyes checked. And I was like, ha just did, I'm fine. <laughs> because once I get this cleared up, I'm sure it'll be fine. Because I really didn't know that I couldn't see. And I think that the pain I was experiencing at that time from headaches and from, from challenges with my vision, I had no idea that the pain I was experiencing at that time, how it was connected to my need for focused vision, for a perspective change. And I wonder if this morning we're willing to have a perspective change on the topic of eternity. So in Ecclesiastes, part of the wisdom literature of the Bible, we see God cares about the philosophical, existential, and epistemological questions of life. And he's allowing Solomon to address these things, these questions that we all have or will wrestle with at some point in life. You know, what is the meaning of life? What brings value to my life? Is there a purpose in life? Why suffering? Why do bad things happen to good people? Is there a God? And if so, what does that mean for my life? And what happens when we die? But in chapter three, verse 11, it says that he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. Life is short. How many of you just thought, play hard? Like the Nike thing. Life is short, play hard. They're doing a good job. Their marketing team's so happy right now. Um, I can't not say that and think that, but, it, but if it's so short, why do we spend so much time focusing on this life and so little on the next? Psalm 90 says, teach us to number our days, O God, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And I remember when I was in college, I was reading C.S. Lewis's essay, The Weight of Glory, for the first time. How many of you have read that before? It's absolutely worth the read. It's widely accessible on the internet. Um, And he talks about eternal perspective 
in a really specific way. And I was telling my mom about this because I was so stirred up about it. Read this along with me. Bear with me. It's a bit long, but it's worth every word. It says, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature, which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror such as you, if you saw it now, you would be, uh, if you now meet it all only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. We're always becoming someone. And I said to my mom, one day we're going to be in eternity, mom. This is, this is crazy. What does this mean for us? We have to think about this because I thought I knew so much and I was trying to tell her. And she paused and looked at me with this knowing smile and said, honey, aren't we in eternity already? And it was the first time in my whole life that I had begun to consider the overlap between this life that we're in and the life to come and how this life is preparing us for the next. And if there's one thing I want you to remember from today is that eternity is real and we are in it now. There are a few different interpretations of the word eternity in this passage, but every single one of them points to this inner human longing for meaning and permanence in the scope of time. It's a matter of design. We have eternity in our hearts. God placed it there. It's etched there. But with so much going on around us, especially during these times when I would argue that most of us have questioned our own mortality more than ever, how can we live with eternal perspective? I think part of the key is in contemplating the second part of that verse that we just read. We can't fathom what he's done from beginning to end. It reminds me of a, a poem that I used to teach. I taught literature for several years at the university. And there was a poem called The Iceberg Seven-Eighths Under by Abby Huston. And I would have students look at an image of an iceberg. And I would say, okay, out of everything there is to know in the entire world, from art, history, culture, language, what percentage do you think you know? And meanwhile, I'm looking at that thinking, I don't even think I know 1%. I don't even know if I could say that I know 1%. And one of those front row seaters, like the, one of the guys in the front row is always there early and always prepared, always wants to say something, which I love you, you students like that if you're out there. But he pops off in the first like five seconds of looking at it and he's like, 20%. I'm like, wow. Everybody back away. This guy knows a lot. Actually, study with him. He probably knows a lot of things, right? He's really, he's really smart. But, you know, when I look at this image, I think of Jesus every time. Because we see the tip of the iceberg, and he is so much more. John chapter 1 gives us a glimpse of this. It says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. 
And through him, all things were made that have been made. And by him, without him, nothing was made that has been made. And in him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. He's the iceberg seven-eighths under. He is the clarity we seek. More Jesus, more light, more understanding, eternal perspective. Because there's a lot of things about eternity that we don't know. And there are a lot of things that we could talk about today to try to understand it. But there is one thing that we do know. And it's in John chapter 17 where Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God through Jesus. And Jesus talked about eternal life a lot. But one of my favorites is whenever we see interactions with three siblings that we know were friends of Jesus. That scripture tells us that he returned to their home many times. And it's Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Would you turn with me to Luke chapter 10, verse 38, where we see a famous interaction with the two sisters at their house. It says, now it happened that as they went, they, he entered a certain village. And a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. That's pretty bold, isn't it? She's directly confronting Jesus, and she she does say Lord. She doesn't say, hey, buddy, right? She has a certain respect to him, right? But essentially, I mean, I think this shows intimacy and, and trust. She says, don't you see me? Do you care? Do you love me? And I love his response to her, which also shows such care and tenderness. He says, Martha, comma, Martha. You are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. And I think we tend to see these sisters as polar opposites or as binaries, right? We're like, Martha, bad, frowny face. Mary, good, right? I had two dolls growing up and I thought one of them was prettier than the other. Guess which one was named Mary? And we tend to think of Martha was busy, but Mary, you know, and and we, we look at, but honestly, Martha was probably the perfect choice to prepare a large meal for a crowd like this. She was very generous, Um, And it wasn't cheap to entertain Jesus, right? He always brought a posse of people with him. And you couldn't just get Uber Eats to like deliver something, right? Something had to die. Like you had to kill an animal. You had to go into great detail and labor to prepare something. And she obviously cared about those things. She was probably the perfect choice to do that. But we're told in scripture that she missed one important thing. She was distracted. And the root Greek word that's translated as distracted is perispio, which means to be so overburdened by various distractions as to be worried and anxious. It's not just that she was busy, right? But she was distracted to the point of being worried and anxious. And for those of you who are English nerds like me, the Greek verb is translated in the imperfect tense, which means that she was in a state of constant distraction, that it happened over and over and over again. She never stopped to listen to Jesus. How many of you can relate right now? Okay, two of you, that's perfect. (laughs) I know I can, and maybe it's a given that all of us can relate, right? Because as John highlighted last week, the scriptures say, do not worry. 
What does it accomplish? Put your mind on those things that are pure and lovely. I mean, it was, it's so important in our thought life. And I believe the Lord wants to bring freedom from worry and anxiety, but we have to stop to listen to him, just like Chris preached two weeks before, or two, the week before that. When all around this room, we stopped and we, we listened to Jesus. What are you saying to us now? The next thing I want us to understand is the importance of focus. If we want eternal perspective, we have to fix our focus. When I was at the eye doctor, I did not know that I couldn't see. And when I adjusted my perspective, how many of you had this experience before? When you get your glasses, you're like, oh, the details. I didn't know your hair was like that. I see leaves. You know, I I didn't even know I was squinting and my headaches went away. It was incredible. And like the glasses I received that day, having eternal perspective makes things so much clearer. What are some false lenses, though, that keep us from seeing eternity clearly? I think a great rubric for this is in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, where scripture says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So let's use these three lenses. And when I say lens, I mean your perspective of value that pilots your decision-making processes. So some of us put on the lens of the lust of the flesh. And by doing this, we give priority to the outside rather than the inside and who we're becoming. And yes, this means the obvious things like sexual uh, pleasures and physically indulgent things and substances that seem more obvious, right? But it also means the things we turn to instead of Jesus to make us feel good, right? Even socially, like media and entertainment, we wanna escape sometimes. But one of the less obvious ones that I feel like the Lord brought to my heart as I was preparing this is, let's talk about the, the concept of gossip, because that's just as much a lust of the flesh as any of these other things. We open our mouths to destroy other people, to justify ourselves all in the name of processing or even a prayer request. But that's not real connection. That's common enemy intimacy. It's cheap and it's fake and it doesn't last. We think it will make us feel good, but we have to take off that lens. The second lens we could put on here is the lust of the eyes. And we don't guard our window to the soul and we let things in that offend and harm our soul. And we look at things we want, whether it is a person or whether it's a job or a career or something that we perceive will make us happy. And we pilot our decision-making processes through this lens. Let us take off that lens. And finally, the last lens we put on is the pride of life. How many of you know that sometimes the hardest things to give back to the Lord are the things we perceive he's given us in the first place, to yield these things to him? And we focus more with this lens on accomplishment and acceptance and what we have to show ourselves rather than our character and who we are becoming. We want everyone to be happy to us, even to the point where we lack real conviction. We work hard to make something of ourselves without asking God 
what he wants. And the thing about these lenses is that they're easy to, we can be at church and be like, hallelujah, eternal perspective, amen, I agree, right? And then we go home and then we take this lens and put it back on and we say, okay, now let's get back to what really matters. And sometimes we don't actually say that, right? But by what we do, we give priority and honor to things that we perceive as more valuable. And yes, all we do for him is important, Right, He gave us the ability to dream and to accomplish great things. But it cannot precede actually knowing him. And we have to let our knowing him fuel all of our doing for him. Let us put on that lens today. You know, we try to teach our kids this, Johnny and I, all the time. Like if they're having an argument, we'll let them get into it for a little bit. And then we're like, hmm, can you take that toy to heaven with you? And they're like, no, like the emoji with the, stri- the flat, like the, they're just, again. But then when I'm like, this doesn't happen every time, but when I'm, when I'm like, what can you take to heaven with you? And then they're like, my sister, <laughs> I'm sorry. And they begin to, to reconcile, right? When you have eternal perspective, reconciliation seems so much more possible and so much more petty to hang on to unforgiveness. And author George MacDonald said that we do our children a disservice when we teach them that they have a soul rather than teaching them that they are a soul. Turn with me to John chapter 11 when their brother Lazarus is sick. We don't know what happened to him, but we know the sisters have sent word for Jesus to come. So let's pick up in verse five. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he ran to his bedside and healed him immediately. No. Right, but that's what we want Jesus to do for us, right? We're like, I'm in pain, I'm suffering, I prayed, you didn't answer, where are you? Right, but sometimes he has other plans. It says he stayed where he was two more days. And then after this, the disciples, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And further down, verse 11, he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. And the disciples say, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. (laughs) I would totally say that. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. And then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there that you may believe. Do you notice that Jesus doesn't even like to use the word dead in scripture? It's not his first choice. He always says asleep. And then he meets Martha on the road. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Again, directly confronting how she feels. She knew, she and her sister both realized that he was the safest place to take their, frust- their, their disappointment, their grief, their sadness. And she's stating the obvious, I know you have the power to do this. And she says, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, and this is key, I am the resurrection and the life He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. He poses this question, do you believe this? And here we have one of the biggest proclamations of faith we see in all scripture, equivalent to that of Simon Peter, where Martha recognizes him both as Savior, as the Son of God, uh, as as the Son of God and as the Messiah, the one who was prophesied to come. And she says to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who has come into the world. And some scholars call this faith's foothold because he didn't challenge her to intellectual assent, right? Or to bait. He challenged her to belief. 
Belief is active, not passive. It's not just like, oh yeah, yeah, I believe that. But faith is belief in action. And here's the truth, if we want eternal perspective, it will take faith. Even if Lazarus was never raised, this would have been incredible news. Because he is saying right now, this is not only about eternal afterlife, but this is right now. Because previously, Martha knew that Jesus was Lord over sickness, and that's why they called for him. And they likely had seen and heard of miracles that he performed, even Jairus' daughter, right, who was asleep. And they knew he was Lord over sickness, but they were about to find out that he was also Lord over death and the grave. They knew he had some sort of special connection with God, right? She said, even now I know that God will give you what you ask. And it says, if in this moment, Jesus is saying, no, you don't understand. I don't have to ask God for life. I am the resurrection and the life. Lazarus is alive because he is in me. And anyone who is in me has life and life right now. That's amazing news all around this place. He doesn't just mean later. He means now. And scripture says that we were dead in our transgressions. Not bad, but dead And when he meets Mary further down the road, he encounters her weeping, and it says he is deeply moved and troubled in spirit. And here's the famous verse in John chapter 11, verse 35, that says, Jesus wept. Why was he weeping if he knew he was going to raise Lazarus? Why include that? Jesus weeps three times in scripture, one here in John chapter 11, second in Luke 19 over the city of Jerusalem, and third in Gethsemane on his way to the cross. The word is not the same word as used for wailing and loud crying. It's a quiet, controlled weeping, shedding of tears. Because death is the result of sin. And anytime we see Jesus weeping in scripture, it is always over the results of sin. Deeply moved means not what I thought about. I used to think it meant, um, this is hard, this is heavy, and I'm moved, right? But it means in the Greek that it snorted with indignation. I would have loved to have seen that. He was not weeping because Lazarus was dead. He was about to fix that. He was angry. And it's because he's saying, this is not the way it was supposed to be. That the death and the intrusion of sin, that was not what we planned. And he was about to go to the cross right then after this, in the the weeks to come, to fix that once and for all. And just as Lazarus was physically dead, and in the same way we are spiritually dead in our transgressions, in our sins, apart from Jesus. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, and I imagine it kind of in this voice, like maybe she was at his shoulder over here, and she's like, my Lord, um, did I not say to you? Uh, he's, he's, been in, he's been dead for four days, so it's probably going to smell bad. You remember this part? She says, it's the stench, it's going to be too bad. And I could see myself saying that, because I think I know so much. And he looks at her and he says, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Because in our way of thinking, seeing is believing, right? But in the kingdom of God, believing is seeing. And we see in scripture that new life can only come with belief in Jesus. So they took away the stone and he prays and he thanks God and he says in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And I'm so glad he said his name because I think that everybody in that family burial ground and that tomb probably would have come out too. 
if he hadn't called him by name. You know it. He is the resurrection and the life. And he brings it now and forevermore because he was offered as a sacrifice now and forevermore for our sins. You see, death is not a condition, it's a doorway into what we've spent this life doing to prepare us for the next. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, behold, I tell you a mystery. In verse 50, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? You see, Jesus took the sting out of death by dying on the cross, his resurrection to forgive the debt, to pay the ransom for sinful man with his life. And today he's saying to each of us, stop living piloted by the whims of society and culture. Stop trying so hard just to be good. Repent of your sins and let me bring you to life. Jesus, the name that bears all eternity, both because he exudes it and because he bears the weight of it. Eternal life is knowing him. Do you believe that today? What will it take for you to put on the lens of eternity today? There's two groups of people I want to talk to in our time that we're closing together. And the first one is that you know that you need to live for eternity now and you're already a Christian, you have a relationship or you're trying to, but you've been looking through the wrong lens. If we took off the lens of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, and we put on the lens of eternity, what would that mean for our families? What could that mean for our churches? What could that mean for our workplace? What could that mean for our nation? What could that mean for eternity? Many of you in this first category have gifts and resources that God wants to use in the greater scheme of things in the perspective of eternity. You just haven't been aware of them up until now. So I want you to ask yourself this question. If I put on the lens of an eternal perspective this morning, it will require me to what? Fill in the blank. Whatever it is that comes to mind first is usually the thing that the Holy Spirit is gently placing his hand on and saying, would you see what I see? Would you look with me into the scope of eternity? And the second group of you that I want to talk to is those who don't yet know him. And he's calling you this morning by name. Come forth. Come and live now and forever. And he's saying to you, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And it's time to come to him this morning. Because he doesn't say, understand everything, clean yourself up, and then come. He says, come as you are. Repent and let me breathe life into you. Because our time is short, but eternity is forever. And if you know he's calling your name this morning, I want to pray with you right now. Because new life is a miracle. And if you were dead and you're coming to life, everyone will know it.
Because you see, the gospel is not information or inspiration. It is invitation to come and see, look and live, come and worship. So in a second, I'm gonna ask you to raise your hands around this room. If you're in this second category, when I count to three, raise your hand so we can pray together and you can begin this journey with Jesus with a conviction that is commensurate to the stirring that you feel within you right now to respond because you know he is who he says he is. Please don't wait and put this off. The time is now. I'm gonna count to three. One, two, and three. All over this room. If you wanna respond, we wanna celebrate with you. This is the biggest decision you could ever make. If you say, I am ready to put on the lens of an eternal perspective, come to him now. Thank you, Lord. So many of us, I assume that we're in a position where we're trying to consider what lens we are looking through this morning. So we're gonna spend just a few moments. You can make an altar, a tabernacle, right where you are, where you tabernacle with the Lord, where you say, come in, and speak to me because I am listening. And if we put on the lens of an eternal perspective, what will we be doing in eternity? Worshiping the Lord forevermore. We'll be worshiping him in his presence. We are changed, right? So when we stand, we behold him and say, you are worthy like that song said. That's what we'll be doing in eternity. We'll be so overcome by the presence of God that we can't help but worship him. So let's, Spend these few moments, and we're not even going to bring the band back out. We're not going to have a big moment where we sing another song. But in this moment, in this time you have, with your families all around you, would you worship the Lord? In fact, would you stand with me this morning? I think this would probably help us. Would you stand with me, if you can, if you're able? And just begin to lift your heart to the Lord. Begin to pray together. We respond to you, God. Don't wait to be led in worship. This is a discipline. Don't wait for someone else to lead you, but whatever is in your heart, your heart song before the Lord. Jesus, help us see clearly, God. We want you. And we need you. We seek your face, God. Would you show us? Would you quicken us? Would you speak to us? For we're listening.